Hey, I'm Jess O'Callaghan, and this is the Audiocraft Podcast. This episode, we're doing something a little different. We're sharing a recording from our mates over at the Third Coast International Audio Festival. The session you're about to hear from their 2018 conference is called All Stories Are Stories About Power, Radical Narrative Storytelling. It's one of those presentations that you'll be thinking about long after you hear it. Sanja Dirks is a reporter at KQED in San Francisco, and Chenjirai Kumanyika is a co-host of the podcast Uncivil. Together, they'll offer techniques to explode traditional narratives. It's going to change how you make audio. Morning. I'm Steve Inskeep. For breakfast food lovers, this is an outrage. First, International House of Pancakes temporarily became International House of Burgers. Now our friends at WGBH bring terrifying news. Dunkin' Donuts is embracing its experiment with dropping the word donuts. They say they're not anti-donut, just pro-coffee. So starting in January 2019, the store will just be called Dunkin'. Now it's time for the hard question. Dunkin' what? It's Morning Edition. This panel is called All Stories Are About Power, and we, were, we kind of figured, you know, we would try to challenge ourselves <laughs> on, on that note. What's up, y'all? How you doing? My name is Chinjirai Kumanika, and I teach in the Rutgers Department of Journalism and Media Studies. I'm also co-host, co-creator of Uncivil, and contributor to Seeing White. And uh, I just want to start out by saying, you know, I am so, this is my first Third Coast, so really excited to be a part of this community. Um, especially because I, you know, I just, you know, when it comes to journalism, I feel like I'm very much still in my learning process. And I've learned so much from you, from the people in this room, you know, and from people who are just really putting their hard work. And that's important when we're talking about a panel like this, because there's a way where it can come off like, you know, in a way that's not appreciative, right? And I'm deeply grateful and appreciative. And I also wanna just set it off by talking about the moment that we're in, you know? Um, In Canada, people are much better about, first of all, recognizing what land we're on. You know, we're on indigenous land. They start off everything that way. Every time you say the word Illinois and all those kind of things, you should be thinking about that and the many other um, nations that were here. So I wanna start off on that recognition I don't have any smudge or anything like that, but you get, we feel to get, we get the feeling. Also, I want to say that, you know, I'm glad that we got some kind of, there was some kind of accountability in relation to the Laquan McDonald case, you know. But a friend of mine said, yeah, I'm so glad we got justice. And I'm like, ah, you know, be careful when you use that word. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't know if we're ready to start imagining what justice would look like. So I just want to say that. And of course, we have this, this Kavanaugh thing, right? Maybe adding a second likely sexual assaulter to our Supreme Court. So I just say that because this is the environment we're in, and it's a traumatic one. And so we wanted to really bring a spirit of love to this. And I wanted to just have love and appreciation for, the, for all of us who, in a lot of ways, are on the front lines of having to face and report and translate this. So I just wanted to start it off on that note. Hello, everybody. My name is Sandia. I'm a station reporter at KQED, so I know about 
taking a lot of these things and trying to make them work in four-minute stories, 45-second stories, and sometimes when I'm lucky, something longer. And I am still learning. Um, I am still in this process. I have learned so much in my discussions with Chen Jirai. I feel incredibly lucky, and you are incredibly lucky to be in a room with him. This is going to be awesome. Um, I first of all wanted to ask, because we play that clip about Dunkin' Donuts, right? Like, does anybody have any idea how that might be actually a story that is a story about power? Yeah. That it's even a story. That, I mean, it's highly promotional whether or not the person is intending or not. And they are privileged to have that intention. So it, it's, yes. it's, it's, an, it's an advertisement, right? It's a, it's a corporate advertisement. There's a name change. And we give more promotion to that because it's, a, you know, an institution. Um, there's some other reasons, too, as well. Uh, you know, Duncan dropping off the donuts kind of signals that they're moving into beverages, which kind of signals that they're moving into competing with places like Starbucks. And here's where that gets political. I mean, one thing that some of you may know is that Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts have very different political def demographics, with Dunkin' Donuts appealing to much older and more conservative folks as well, right? And one of the ways that that winds up mattering is that, and by the way, I just want to say, like, this might be my new podcast, like how I make, ruin everything and make it racial. Because <laughs> I literally, I started this out, I was like, yo, what could not be political? I love, I love donut, you know what I mean? So I was like, <laughs> so I was like, you know, but, but there was a, there was an instance of a Dunkin' Donut a store that posted a sign inside of it. its manager posted something inside warning its employees to not speak Spanish. Now, why does some anecdotal one Dunkin' Donut among the thousands matter? Because of how corporate responded, right? Corporate defended that and said, well, they're just trying to like do something appropriate for their customer base, right? Which is, of course, very different than the way Starbucks responds. So a story that is just about a place trying to compete for revenue share is actually a story about politics. Um, and our argument is that all stories are stories about power. Um, one of the things that we want to say from the very beginning is because we are still in the process of learning about how to do the kind of analysis we're going to present today, um, we want you to be part of this conversation. So feel free to ask questions, pipe in. This is, this is not a, a, a lecture. This is not a sermon. This is a discussion, and you are all part of it. So, you know, feel free to pipe in. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask in this room is, who here considers themselves a storyteller? All right. I love it. How many, how many people in this room consider themselves people whose work is about narrative? And those are wonderful, wonderful things. But we also want to be really aware that stories are fucking dangerous. That stories can be deeply damaging. And that narratives don't just have to be true. They can also be false. And so the work we do has the power to illuminate, but it also has the very dangerous power to be propaganda, even when we don't know it. And that's what we're trying to kind of shine a light on and make ourselves more aware of today. Absolutely. And yo, let me just say, since I have this, can we just have another big hand for Sanja Dirks? Anybody listen to American Suburb? Yo. Put American Suburb on the top of your thousand podcasts I need to listen to list. And so when we think about what are these dangers of narrative, as my friend Abby Lewis calls it, the tyranny of narrative, there's two possible things that we want to focus on that are like pitfalls, two kinds of things. One is 
the myth that there are stories that are not political, that don't have political dimensions, right? And that's, that's one way we become vulnerable, right? As we are working on our stories is if we just kind of des bracket something out, well, this isn't political. This isn't big ideas. This is just a small thing, right? Because, and I, I just wanna say like I'm a journalist, but in my other job, I study critical media theory and critical theory. So I'm kind of like a philosopher. And so I do, one thing I do understand is that power is always present. You're always commenting on power in one way, right? And so that's the first pitfall that we want to avoid, which means that we kind of need to scrutinize stories like a Dunkin' Donuts story, right, that seems like it doesn't have political dimensions and ask how it might be political and how we could shift even a short reporting thing. The second thing is this idea of stories that we know are political, right, but the ways that they're being covered is not sufficient, right? We're, we're picking out particular layers. And so we're, like, I, and I just want to be clear, like, we want to draw on the collective expertise as we're all solving this problem. And I just also want, I, I want to keep saying this, there's so many examples of good work, which we're going to refer to here, where people have kind of like solved it in this one story, you know? And so I want to just lift that up. But we're going to offer a way to think about this a little bit more systematically we wanted to think about a slightly different model, um, a model that looks at the way narrative and stories happen. And so you're, you're looking at this, this strange sort of bullseye target thing right here. Um, and a lot of stories are way into a lot of stories. We know as storytellers, is personal, right? What's like the first rule of storytelling? Find a character. That's sort of gospel. And you find that character and you tell a personal story because that's how we find a doorway into other people's experiences. That's how we sort of get that emotional investment which takes us into the sort of deeper analysis. This is, this is gospel, right? Um, one of the things we, want, we wanted to talk about was the personal and some of the traps within that because there's some dangers when you tell a personal story. Some of those dangers are, you know, the quirky or exceptional story. We've all heard that story about somebody who's, you know, got something different about them or a different life experience or something that's sort of exceptional and their story gets told. And that's amazing. We need to have exceptional stories. We need to have quirky stories. That's why, that's why people take our pitches. I mean, um, but it's also got some traps to it that we can fall into when we see things as exceptional, when we see things as quirky. I'm going to play you. Oh, there we go. I'm going to call myself out for doing this. Um, play you a little bit of a story. We all know the neighbor who goes a little bit overboard with the Christmas lights display. Well, we now take you to a perfectly manicured street in Palm Springs, where artist Kenny Irwin has taken holiday decorations to a new extreme. Sandia Dirks of member station KPBS has this tour of a post-apocalyptic fantasy land. Walk into Kenny Irwin's Winter Wonderland, and you soon recognize it's not like anything you've ever seen before. Here is uh, Santa's battle wagon, complete with 12 uh, highly advanced robotic deer. And the reason why it has to use 12 deer instead of 9 is because it's a much heavier model of sleigh, and it's battle armored. So this is for everyone that's been on Santa's naughty list. And if you're on Santa's nice list... If you're on his nice list, and whatever you put on your list, no matter what, you're going to be getting a pink robot, whether you like it or not. Because in this world, in this story, Santa only gives robots to all the kids. <laughs> only pink robots. Okay, so 
that's obviously a quirky, funny story, and I pitched it to NPR, and they took it. But it also falls into some traps, because there's some context there you're not getting, right? This is this guy, grown man, lives with his father, who has a lot of money, um, and has a lot of property, allows his son to sort of create these fantasy worlds, escape into them, possibly. There's also some other things going on here underneath the surface. Kenny is, although he was raised Christian, converted to Islam. So much is happening, and yet we focus, I focused, on the quirky or the exceptional, which really leaves out the more, and sorry, next slide, I really leaves out a lot of the more interesting, problematic, and power dynamics of the story. So that is one major trap of, you know, the personal story. And, you know, I just want to say, we live in a world that has a dominant ideological idea. I mean, there's, you know, billions of us, we all think differently, but there are some dominant ideological ideas. And the dominant way of knowing the world is personal and psychological. So one way to think about this is, for example, the way we think about police, right? Police and our dominant ideology, everything is about the individual police officer. What is in his, this person's mind, their attitudes. It's also how we think about racism. And we talked about this a lot on Seeing White, right? So by default, you're always in the personal, right? That's where you are. That's where you're going to be unless you're actively resisting this, right? And I want to be clear, right? Like, the personal is important. This is not to debunk the per Like, don't ever, let's nobody tell personal story. That is not, don't, please don't tell people that's what Chinjara left here is telling you. Somebody's going to say that. What I'm saying is that the personal is always situated in a, in a larger context. So with that police officer, right, certainly the attitudes of the police officer are a problem, you know, or a thing to be scrutinized. We want folks to have good attitudes and, like, not be bigots and not be, like, you know. But obviously there's also other dynamics, right, where they get left out, and that's where we try to bring in these, these cultural layers, right? But I just want to mention two more sort of traps that are within the personal. And one of them is this sort of the primacy of psychology, right? There's a lot of kind of work that's done or, you know, think about a TED Talk where it's like you're thinking this way. If you just thought this way, you could change your mind. But the amount of privilege it takes to be able to just think your way out of a problem is staggering because we live within systems and structures so this primacy of psychology, this idea that we can think through things and we can think ourselves into change is a dangerous trap. It also happens in podcasts when they tell a story like that, right? And we've all heard those podcasts that sort of work in that way. Here's a new fact. This is going to inform you and change you. Again, we're not saying throw out facts and we're not saying facts can't inform you or change you. We're saying that that narrative is problematic and needs to be questioned. The final one is the empathy trap. And I, I want to be careful with this one because I heard somebody saying, in I heard someone mentioning the empathy trap and somebody saying, oh no, we, sh we need to have empathy. I am not saying don't have empathy. Empathize with me, my stolen Pro Tools and the fact that I'm bad at PowerPoint. Like, let's have empathy. It's one of the most important ways in which we can connect to each other. But it's also a trap because it tells us that I can feel what you are feeling that I, in my experience, know what it is to be a black woman, and I don't. And empathy can convince us that I can bridge that gap. But my own privilege, my nexus of experience, tells me I can't. And so be careful when we use empathy, because it can lull us into a false sense of security, because it's what we want, right? We want to be able to empathize with other people, to reach into their lives. Um, 
So I'm gonna, I'm gonna play another example here of, a, of what I would call the empathy trap. It's Friday and time for StoryCorps. Today, the launch of a new project. It is called One Small Step, and it's an effort to bring together Americans with differing political views. After the 2016 election, Joseph Widenecht went to a Trump protest in Austin. He showed up with pro-Trump signs and a Make America Great Again hat. Amina Amdeen, a Muslim student at the University of Texas, was one of the anti-Trump marchers. They came to StoryCorps to remember the moment that brought them together. I noticed you with the hat, Mm -hmm. and I noticed that you were surrounded by some people, and I noticed that they were being kind of threatening. I heard a click of a lighter right behind my ear, and there were about three people trying to light my shirt on fire with lighters. And then somebody snatched your hat off your head, and that's the point where I... Something kind of snapped inside me because I wear a um, Muslim hijab, and I've been in situations where people have tried to snatch it off my head. Wow. And I rushed towards you, and I just started screaming, leave him alone, give me that back. I don't think we could be any further apart as people, and yet it was just kind of like this common, that's not okay moment. So I want to say, first of all, I love StoryCorps. Like, their stories make me cry, and so many of them are amazing. So this is not... Not StoryCorps. This is not to drag StoryCorps. But that story tells us that those two people can find each other without any discussion of anything else that is happening underneath the surface. That her experience as a Muslim woman, a hijabi in this country, is somewhat similar to his experience as a white male Trump supporter. And that is dangerous. There's something else going on in the story that's about that second level, outside of personal, that's about cultural. So as storytellers, right, we've got our character, right? We found our personal angle. We've interviewed somebody, we're in that. Now we're like wanting to take it to that next level. It's like, you know, I want to, I realize like I'm, I'm looking at this police officer, right? I realize actually we can't find all the answers in this person's mind with psychology. And let me just do a brief, I don't want to go too professionally on you, but there's a reason why psychological mode is the way we think. And that's because the people who have shaped research methods were people who were dealing with industry and they wanted way, they wanted modes of epistemology that would enable them to be able to shape and manipulate the world and not have to deal with history, right? And all those other kinds of things. So history, and it's really radical feminist studies that brought other kinds of knowledge making into even in the, the academy, right? About how we know the world. So there's a reason and an agenda at work when all this psychology is the only way we understand things. So let's say you know that and you're like, I want to take it deeper. You go to the cultural level. There's a culture in the police department. Oh, they have language. They have their own language. They have their own symbols. They get tattoos. Wow, white supremacists. That's cultural, right? And that's good. It's good to raise it to the cultural things. But one of the reasons why this matters is because it's actually... It has to do with the solutions, right? So at the personal level, all the solutions to everything become about training. We're going to train, right? And then, like, the cultural is like, we're going to dialogue. We're going to train all men out of patriarchy, right? Each individual man, right? We're going to, and all those kinds of things, right? And it's like, you know, at the cultural level, you get stories that are kind of like, hey, I'm looking at this, this, like, athletic team, and I find that they have a real issue with, like, sexual assault, and, you know, but, but also maybe let's just look at, you know, men and women are different. They have different cultures. Women like to knit 
you know, and men like to play football and break things. So maybe if we just have the men and women come together in like a, maybe the male knitting thing, we'll fix all the sexual assault that way, right? Maybe if I just eat with Muslims, you know what I'm saying? I can solve all the problems that way. And you're dealing with a culture where people want that to be the solution. A certain section of people don't want to have to face structures, right? We want to like maybe think, maybe if we just eat and hug folks, we can fix everything, we can fix everything. We should eat and hug folks, by the way. I'm all for that. Clearly, again, you know, so. so. Don't ruin eating and hugging yeah, people. Right. Those are two of my and, and favorite things. Um, you know, I have, an, I have examples of this in terms of I've covered police a lot. Anyone heard of the Oakland Police Department? Um, so <laughs> I've covered, uh, you know, Oakland police. I've covered the cop on the beat, the individual guy, what he goes through in his, his struggle. And then a couple years ago, we had this major scandal, might have heard of it, um, where uh, Oakland police officers had sexually assaulted, raped an underage girl. Um, and they were, you know, sort of held accountable, kind of, in a, that nobody got um, actually prosecuted uh, kind of way. But one of the things that happened is, is people started talking about the culture of the police department. The mayor of Oakland said to us, there is a toxic macho culture. And there is, but there's a reason for that. And unless you go back and look at the history of police and understand how policing came to be in America and understand how it was based on slave catching, you can't get to the point where you can critique the culture of today's police because you are literally occluding hundreds of years of history that built this. You can look at the tip of the iceberg, but if you don't understand how much ice is beneath that, we are going to Titanic. So just to review, we're all about the personal. That's important. It's a necessary, essential device for our storytelling. The cultural level is an area that we have to consider because we're always commenting on that one way or another, right? Um, but we got to get to the structural. And I want to play an example. I want to beat up on my own work a little bit if I can real quick. Um, so it's a story I did that some of you might be familiar with um, that I talked about voices. And this was an effort where I was trying to bridge. I was trying to like look at co a cultural problem, right? That had to do with voices and shared understandings of voices. And I, and I kind of feel that in a way, I, while, I, while I, this piece was like helpful and I was proud of it, and I just, I have to also shout out NPR who really supported me in making this piece. They took my critique and welcomed it in and mentored me, right? For, you know, I, I think that like, I think I fell short of that structural level. So let's listen. Of course, it's not just about what potential journalists face. It's also about the audience and the mission of public radio. Different hosts with different voices tell different kinds of stories. And vocal styles communicate important dimensions of human experience. What are we missing out on by not hearing the full range of those voices? Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. My wife and I spent some time in Ferguson, Missouri in August and November of 2014. I was standing on the block where Darren Wilson killed Michael Brown, and I asked one young man why he thought there had been such an uprising in Ferguson. He reminded me that Michael Brown's body had laid in the street for four and a half hours before being picked up. Of course, I had heard this before in the news, but this young brother made me feel it. No one was there to translate. Instead, he carefully told the story his own way. I felt the weight of Michael Brown's body and the weight of so many other young lives in this young man's voice. So that was me wrestling with voices, right? And again, I'm not dismissing this piece, and you know, I'm, I'm proud of it. 
But the language of voices is tricky, right? When everything just becomes about voices, right? Um, because there are structures underneath the voices. And, it, and one, of the ways, one of the things we get into is at that cultural level, we see this whole issue of diversity and inclusion, and we start to begin to understand why diversity and inclusion, like the, the conferences I, I've been hearing about and interested in talk about decolonization. The question is, what are we diversifying, right? What are we, that's the question you gotta ask. What are we really diversifying? Because if we're diversifying an incredibly oppressive structure and putting lots, making sure that at every level of that oppressive structure, there's just like, a lot of people of color and some queer folks, right, helping to administrate the oppressive structure, right? I don't know if that's what we want, you know what I mean? I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm gonna be careful because I'm, I'm, let me duck before I say this, but like I'm all, I'm all excited about, like I'm excited to see Beyonce get wins, but I also am interested in like what Beyonce's line, dan like the low line people that work with her, what's up with them, right? All these black CEOs and black, all these other things. So diversity and the cultural level gets that part of it, but there is a way, and, and, and all of us who are, who are people of color or women know that you have been invited into places, right? So that your presence and your success can actually be used against the masses of your people. This is something the critical race scholar Derek Bell said. He said, be, you will be used against the masses of your people. And you need to wake up every day, look in the mirror and ask that. So these cultural conversations about voices have to get deeper. We have to start asking, you know, I, was, I just returned from that picket line down um, a, a group of us, thanks to Third Coast, who sent us down there. Shout out to Third Coast for Solidarity with Workers. Yeah. Like, you want to see the working class? Go to that picket line. Latino, Asian American women, women mostly, down there working, out there striking, putting themselves on the line. It's, it's sort of in a city like Chicago, I, I don't want to get emotional. It's like, think about the demographics of Chicago. Why? are the people on the front lines the most vulnerable folks out there doing it, while, while, while so many of us are comfortable, including me, you know, it's, 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 anyway. So cultural has some pitfalls, there's deeper levels, and we gotta get to his history, as Sonia said, we gotta get to economic practices, and we gotta get to laws. I was actually having a conversation with some people at lunch today, because as a journalist, I can't go to picket lines, um, but, I was having a conversation at lunch and we were talking about like editors and how important they are and how some of like the worst kind of most sexist behavior we've gotten is from women editors. I don't know if that's true for any of you, but I think that's a thing that can happen. And that's exactly the problem with diversity in name only, right? When you diversify a newsroom, which we need to do, please don't stop doing that also. Yo, yes, yes, more. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like, more <laughs> and more editors of color. But that's not enough, right? Because if the system is flawed and fractured, then the things that happen in the system, will, I mean, th th that is the ultimate control, right? That is, that is the, the hyperstructure. That is the scaffolding. Yes? It seems that we're relying on diversification to change the structure. As if we just, if we just populate the structure diversely, it will fold on itself and magically shift. Um, but when we're trying to attack a structural issue, how do you begin to do that without, um, without perhaps attacking the diversification? I think that's a pretty good segue, right? Because, yeah. uh, thank you. We hired her to ask that question. Um, because when we're talking about structure and that kind of structural analysis, 
It isn't a defeat of the things that you can do. You still need to be doing those things. It's asking us to go one step further, right? It's saying, we mostly tell stories in this blue little bit right here. Most of my stories are in this blue little bit. And what we're asking is for an analysis and an incorporation of what's in the red, right? To bring that into our thinking, not to discard these. You need the Earth's core. You need the story's core. You need story core. See what I did there? Um, <laughs> but, but we need to go further. And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit now, about how to go further in storytelling and in rigorous analysis, how to apply that from, again, 45 seconds to four minutes to 45 minutes. We should be doing this in all of our stories. We should be doing it in all our stories. And, and I also want to, this is a good point for me to shout out. I don't, because in the first night, we had some awesome provocations. And I just want to lift those up as part of lifting up the collective knowledge. So on that note, I mean, one of the structural things we got to push back on is time, right? And Sam Sanders made this point, right? I'm, I'll butcher the quote, but like if all, everything's breaking all the time, then we're broken. I see that as very resonant with what we're talking about. Because if you want to get to those structural layers, right, those deeper historical layers and back away from the shackles of urgency, then you have to have time to report. So we all know that these kind of stories are, 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 have to do with like who's running the funding and the funding structures in a 24-hour news cycle. We know why it is, right? It ain't like all of a sudden all journalists just woke up and said, I want to stop doing deep investigative stuff. That wasn't us, right? That was someone else's demand for relentless content. Um, so I want to shout that out. Um, Stan Alcorn was talking about um, just the importance of, you know, like the story structure. And he said, don't just fact check your, he said, okay, let me get this right. He said, don't just fact check your story, fact check your analysis, right? Every story delivers an analysis. It makes a commentary about how power is working. Right, so you gotta actually say ultimately what is the point of this, right? And it's, that's hard. As on civil, I think a lot of times on civil and stuff I've worked on, we don't get it right because you have to get in. It, this is a lot of stuff is down in the weeds. You're revising. You're looking at sentences and words and moments and the stuff clear, and you can lose sight of what the analysis being delivered is, it's right? So I think that's. I want to shout that out. I also want to shout out um, Jeannie Yandel and um, Eula uh, Bono because they gave a great provocation talking about back in, you know, like just thinking critically about this both sides thing, you know, and all that kind of, you know, you know that we know how much, I mean, again, multiple perspectives, I'm here for that. But I was so happy when she said that because I was like, yeah, you know, we know the violence that's been done under the both sides mantra, right? So these are things that people raised up uh, that I just thought were like really valuable and I don't want them to get lost. Both sides can become whataboutism, right? And it, it tends to. And I, you know the old mantra, like, if somebody says it's raining outside and somebody else says it isn't, you don't interview both of them and put them on the radio. You go outside to, say if it's, to see if it's raining. We want to add to that, and you find out why it's raining, right? And I know that does take time. But it also takes some tools, some kind of structural analysis tools, which we are hoping to kind of give you some framework for. The other thing that I, I wanted to kind of point out, which we didn't mention, was... Because I, I, to, I, to, uh, I went to the true crime panel yesterday, and I thought they had a great thing that they said, which we want to be storytellers, not story takers, which is incredibly powerful. And they also talked about systems in some of the clips they played. I haven't heard Finding Clear yet, but they talked about systems. And I thought that was really, really powerful stuff because true crime, which is, as we know, the genre of podcasts right now, it can seem a bit like it's about you know, 
systems, right? Like it can seem a bit like it's about cultures, like it's about literally the criminal justice system. But oftentimes a story that is about one thing that has happened will actually fall within the realm of the personal, right? Or the cultural, because it will be about an exceptional thing that happened. And the problem with exceptional things, as you put so way, is the sort of the deniability that that's happening over there. Right. It, absolutely. It's like this fallacy of deviance. So, again, Bell Hooks, the incredible feminist scholar, one time talked about this, this situation where she said white feminists would come to her and say, hey, don't you want to come talk about the toxic misogyny in hip hop music? And Bell Hooks would say, yes. It's important to note that she said yes. She said, however, I don't want to talk about it the way you want me to talk about it. You want me to talk about it as deviant, whereas I want to talk about it as reflective. And I think that with all the true crime stories, it's so difficult because there's just so much. I mean, shout, first of all, anybody who's worked on crime, shout out and applause for all the beautiful crawl. No applause for the true crime stuff? Oh, like you hate true crime? Damn. <laughs> I mean, it's hard work. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, the question I'm asking when I listen is, because when we pitch, we have to find exceptional stories, right? You know that pitch game. I just came out the pitch panel. You know, that's the, people, that's the question people ask you. What's different about this? I have a story about an average Joe. Will you pay me for it? <laughs> so the question I ask is, are we painting this system like this is an extru- exceptionally egregious system that is a deviation from our normal system? Because when we, when we create that impression, then in a way we're kind of saying like our normal system is all right. And we get into these fallacies of restoration and make America great again. If only we could make our justice system great again. Not like this one. So I think the challenge that I'm always dealing with is how in my stories when I'm navigating this, and again, this comes down to these moments, having this in mind in these tiny moments of revision, right? In these edits and sessions with people, like just asking this question. I always have this in my mind, and, you know, um, about that, that, that deviance thing, right? Uh, yeah, I, I, like, I mean, it is absolutely important to say true crime is amazing. I don't wanna, I don't wanna just at all, I listen to it. It's, it's, it's really addictive. Um, but we do need to get to that sort of deeper level, right, of looking at structures. And um, one of the things that we wanted to kind of point out is that, like, as a storyteller, we think about collecting facts, right? As, as journalists, we think about collecting facts. Facts are important. They matter. Getting things right matters. But the choices we make with those facts, which ones we deploy, who we choose, you know, to, to be in our stories, who gets to speak, who, what, what we have them say, all of those Choices are really important. I want to give an example. I was uh, reporting on the murder of a young woman, a young 18-year-old woman named Nia Wilson on a BART platform in Oakland this summer. And I was doing a 45-second spot about the charges that were brought against the white man who stabbed her and killed her. Um, And I wrote up in that, my initial draft, that she was black, she was a young black woman, and he was white. But there wasn't enough time because my editor wanted to get into the nitty gritty of, you know, what was happening with the charges. And so I had to fight and say, I don't feel comfortable putting this on the air without mentioning what I think is a key part of the story. And so we face moments like that where we have to kind of fight for things that we think are important that other people that maybe editors, especially breaking news editors, don't think are important. And sometimes it's banging your head against a brick wall, but it is a very worthy fight. There was a moment we had in uh, Uncivil that I'll share without trying to out anybody where we were talking about we had a we had a show about ladies, women soldiers in the Civil War. Um, And 
the person who was wrote a line and that was basically saying like, talking about a particular character, this woman was a real soldier. She wasn't just, you know, like a nurse or something like that. And it wasn't quite that harsh, but it was something like that. And the reason why this person phrased it that way was because they are from the South and they're used to like these like, you know, male friends who would just kind of like do this thing that often happens with, with patriarchy where they're just like, yeah, women say they want equality, but when it comes to the hard stuff, where are they at? Right. Which, of course, if you know anything about women in the military, that's not that's just in life in general. It's, it's not that's, that's you know, BS. But so I understood why the person wanted to say have that line in there, like the show, like these women in the Civil War were like doing the hardest gun bearing work, quote unquote, hardest work. But that was exactly what I stuck on. I was like, that ranking of what kind of work on the battlefield is important, right, is, is like, you know, not acceptable, right? Especially because the nurses were actually more important than anybody else in the Civil War. Most people in the Civil War died because of gangrene and all that kind of stuff, right? They didn't die in these glorious bullet ways. And just that whole idea about gender and work. Now, mind you, this was early on in my career before I understood that journalists only understand what's the new writing. So I was like waxing real academic. I was like, yeah, guys, it's like gender ranking and roles. And it's like, you guys got to read like, you know, this is, you, you know, you got to read like some Judith Butler. I mean, this is, this line is all, and you know, it's like Alex, everybody's, what is the sentence change to fix this? <laughs> right? But, you know, I mean, that was a moment where I had these different things. And in other words, in trying to make this what I thought was a political, with one political intervention, we're always reflecting on deeper structures. <laughs> Every knitting needle uh, is a sword if you carry it right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um. I... <laughs> so, um, I want to kind of give another example, and I'm going to call out NPR right now. So I did it with an NPR editor in the room, so I feel comfortable with all of you. But um, uh, I don't know if you were listening to the Kavanaugh hearings last week. And a lot of people noted the way in which um, Anita Hill was talked about in, in, in the way that uh, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford was talked about as more believable. And obviously, we know that there are coded ways in which that actually means something. And I think as journalists, we should say what those things mean and not and really question coded language because... Coded language is not objective language, right? And, and as our job is to be objective, let's truly be objective. But, you know, that stuff, that bothered me, bothered a lot of people. But that wasn't what bothered me the most. What bothered me the most was when Nina Totenberg said, well, but this hearing, this confirmation hearing, it isn't about race. Thank God. That is not objectively true. And as journalists, it's really important for us to consider what is objectively true, which is that race is a construct, and everything is about race. I'm a race and ethnicity reporter, but I cover everything because that should be the framework of all stations. That should be the basis. There shouldn't be race, ethnicity, and identity reporters. All stories are about that. And so we need to really question our assumptions of what objective facts are. This is not to say we shouldn't be objective. I'm a reporter. I believe in truth. I just think what we've called objective truth isn't objective truth. A hundred percent. You know, I mean, because, again, so much violence has been done using the professional language of objectivity, right? You know, so many voices have been silenced. And I know some of them are in this room saying, well, that's not objective. You don't have both sides. You're not getting enough perspectives. So this has made someone like myself 
almost at different times want to like get rid of objectivity, right? Or even like I couldn't have made the kind of podcast I make under the professional understanding of objectivity, right? However, this current era we're in politically has made me really come back to value objectivity. I don't know that I would say we have to recuperate it because I don't know that we ever had it per se, but there are, to me, there is some facts and we have to at least operate as though there's some kind of actual, you know, a truth out here that we can be gotten to. But the other thing I know is I teach journalism and media studies and I see that in a lot of journalism programs, when students get to my class or certain classes, that's the first time they may have had critical disability theory and critical disability studies. It's the first time. You can go through your whole education. They, have, they haven't really read. I mean, they're like, oh, socialism is kind of like, I get it. We don't like rich people or something. You know, they have not read any of the first documents or deep study that has been done in that tradition. They haven't read any radical feminist theory. They haven't read any radical queer theory. And I just want to say, if you, now mind you, no one feels more deficient in my knowledge of these things than me. I'm always in an ongoing deficit and hunger and curiosity in that quest for knowledge. But if, you, if we as journalists aren't literate with those things, I'm not saying you have to agree. I'm not here to tell people what they got to agree with. If you ain't literate with those things I just mentioned, you're not equipped to figure out what's objective. And we're not equipped to do our jobs. You know, and that's, and, and, and like, you know, this, it's funny because somebody, it's funny, I, was, I was at a panel earlier today and someone said, someone asked, and it was a good question, if I'm, a, if I'm in a group of, white, if I have an all white journalism unit and we have to report on race, what do we do? And somebody, of course, the first answer is, why do you have an all-white unit, right? Like, fix that is the number one question, number one issue. But I also thought about this. A lot of, so much of the ill critical race theory that I start, like whiteness studies, there's a lot of white scholars in there who are, who are, who are doing that. There's so much you could learn. You as a white person can become an expert in those things. I don't, I don't, I don't think biology determines what you can become an expert in. You know what I mean? I mean, I listen to people of color and marginalized people to hear what we have to say because we do carry certain knowledges. Women carry certain knowledges. But that don't make you an expert. You got to study. You know, and so to figure out what objectivity is, and I think our, our objectivity is a better objectivity. I think that the kind of stories when you listen to Code Switch's story, for example, because I want to give some examples of people that got this right. Code Switch did a story called The Other Storm on Puerto Rico. Anybody hear that? By Adrian, I forget, I forget the brother's Florida. last name who I worked with at KBS, and it's an amazing reporter. I don't, think it's, I don't think that story is good because it's radical. I think it's good because it's objectively a better explanation of the situation. You know what I mean? I, when, I, when I listened to the story that The Daily did on the sexual harassment in the Ford plant, right, dealing with the personal, but then zooming it out to the structural and economic and political, that's a better objective explanation of the situation than some of these other stories that don't hit all those levels. Let me calm down. I mean, I'll start yelling. Barbershop boat. <laughs> Please, no. I don't want you to calm down. Um, another example, I think, is being also discussed at this, at this conference, and that's five women. Um, and one of the reasons that I want to point that out is it seems at first like it's a personal story, right? And then it seems like it's a cultural story. But it's actually describing a, a structural issue, right? And we don't have to give up storytelling to tell structural stories, they can still be really personal, really gut-punching, really powerful. But maybe we need to reframe the way we think about things. And for example, while we're telling stories about people, we're always telling stories about systems. And sometimes the system is your character. When you tell a story about a young child, right, you're telling a story about the education system. 
And so can we reframe our thinking just a little bit to think about the system that we're talking about? And even just small thought tweaks like that, along with informing yourself, if he feels inadequate in what he's read and studied, you don't even want to think how I feel. Um, but we're going to try to, t we're gonna try to uh, tweet out, we haven't done this yet completely, a tweet out a sort of a bibliography of books that we think that all journalists should read. Um, I think the tweet that I said was structural something, just, just getting, structural getting structural or something, I don't, I'll, I'll just follow us. But if you, if you do that, we'll tweet out some things that we think you should read. And they will include names you've heard today, like Bell Hooks, like Judith Butler. Um, and those things are ways in which you can begin to sort of transform and grow your thinking when you, enact, like, when you look at systems and understand that people are within those sort of structures. And, you know, I, I hope that on that hashtag, what we can also do is continue, we'll put out some more examples of stories where we think it got like a piece of this right. But I'd like this to be something that we all participate in. Like, you know, you tweet something and say, this story to me seems like it hits these levels, but I'm not sure or whatever, you know, so we can have, because really ultimately that's what this is, right? We're offering this tool as a way for you to think about this and have the, bring this into your editing sessions, right? Print it out, show it to folks. And say, you know, and I, and I also want to just stress that, like, I think some stories are going to inevitably lean way more personal, and that's fine. They, they inevitably might lean cultural at different places, right, and structural. You can, and they start all these different places, right? Sometimes you start here and go out. Sometimes you start here and you decide you want to go in. That's all good. But it's just about thinking about how, what commentary are we making and doing it in that way. And understanding that there is an invisible structure beneath us and thinking about the challenges as storytellers of actually illuminating that invisible structure. If it's written in invisible ink, we are the black light, right? And we can, we can make that shine. Um, we wanted to talk about a couple other solutions. Do you wanna play? Oh, sure. Yeah, well, I mean, this example that, that some of you have already heard, this is like a snippet from the intro of Seeing White. What I think was interesting about this is that, you know, typically we start out with, with a character, right? And we're like, you know, the, the initial problems that we pose are very close to that character, right? Which is, I think, a great narrative device because it, it draws us in and helps people to follow what's going on. And then we get bigger. But sometimes the bigger problems that we get don't actually hit the structural. So what John did, he set up the mission of seeing white in a way that I think, in ways I think that one of the best things that he did was this right here. Because once he set up the mission, he gave himself permission to go at it and ask these deeper questions, as opposed to like what I often am struggling with is like I've set up the mission to draw somebody up. I'm like, this is a story about betrayal, you know. And then in the middle of the edit, I'm like, oh fuck, how can I make a betrayal story and touch on it? <laughs> so anyway, I'm John Bewin. It's Seen on Radio. The race beat in American journalism usually involves pointing our gaze and our cameras and microphones at people of color. That goes for me too. Over several decades as a reporter and documentary maker, I've told the stories of black folk from Chicago to the Mississippi Delta, Latinos from North Carolina to the apple orchards of Washington State, Native Americans from the Navajo Nation in the Southwest to Ojibwe country up north. I'm proud of a lot of that work, but if I think about how I built those stories, I've often treated whiteness like the proverbial elephant in the room. You might hear about some white individuals or white-run institutions, the alleged bad apples, the discriminators. But like most American reporters, I've usually left white people as a group, the white race, unnamed. 
In the coming batch of episodes, a series we call Seeing White. Turning the lens around, looking straight at white America, and at the notion of whiteness itself. Where did this idea of a white race come from? God? Nature? Or is it man-made? And if somebody manufactured the idea, why? For what purpose? How has the meaning of white changed over the centuries, and how does it function now? <laughs> no, but I mean, that shows you that if you are a white journalist, you don't have to not talk about race, right? If you look at structural analysis, you can, you can do that. Um, and we can think differently because we're not thinking about one thing in one category and one thing in another. We're understanding that we're all part of the system. Um, and so that's, I mean, if you guys haven't listened to seeing white or uncivil, also those. Um, we do want to offer you a couple more solutions because we're not just here to kind of tell you how terrible things are. Find the system in your story, right? That's something you can identify that right off the bat. And that way you're no, you're, you'll know what you're talking about. That will change the way you can think. It's changed the way I think about my stories almost entirely. This, this is an idea that you actually, I want you to talk about it because you, you, you kind of gave me this idea of, of doing this power narrative edit or check-in as part of the editing process. Not just part, like at the beginning of the process, find the system in your story, but at the end of the process, how do you go about checking yourself, right? Basically. Right. Well, like from listening to podcasts that I think get this right, like American Suburb and like so much of the other good work. Also, there's a, there's a good podcast. I, I want to shout out a lot of examples, but there's one called The Secret Life of Canada. Everybody ever listen to that? It's a dope podcast. That's like the uncivil of Canada, but or we're the secret life of Canada of America or something like that. I don't know. But anyway, listening to stuff like that, one thing that we forged to like at Uncivil was this space where at a certain point in the edit process, we would say essentially, what is this story ultimately saying about power, right? Because, and the reason why we have to do that is because we do, in a way, let our characters lead and let the story be organic and go where the story needs to go. So there is a certain way in which we submit to the story because otherwise it'll just be ham-fisted propaganda that I would make. Um, but, the, but the reality of it is, is at a certain point, even in that process where you're letting the story lead and doing what's going to work, we would stop and go, what, what do we think this is saying about these larger systems at this point? And just having that check-in is a really important moment. It might result in like, a sentence being different, a couple of words being different. You know, it's not like you got to change the whole structure of your story. It might add into you looking for a different piece of tape, you putting in some archival or just how you end it, you know, but it's like it makes a huge difference. And it's those little changes that, you know, that, that sentence or that phrase might be the thing that rings in somebody's ears and transforms them. And I, just, I, I want to be clear because we really want to unleash the power of narrative. I don't want to sound like we're beating up on narrative, right? So, yeah. Narrative is everything to me. And so it's how to make it better. So we started this off by saying all stories are stories about power. What is the power dynamic in your story? Thank you for uh, being so open with your knowledge and wisdom and sharing um, just, I feel like, I'm sure it's so, um, so much struggle and so many different things you're having to navigate as producers in the industry and being open to educating all of us in this work is really um, uh, generous, so thanks a lot. Um, I have a few proposal and suggestions for Third Coast uh, programmers. Um, I really want to thank you for honoring the land and um, I 
I really propose that or kind of wondering how can that be a priority for festivals in the, I don't know if that was done in the opening ceremony, but how can we prioritize that in as festival programmer gatekeepers to bring that. Um, and so I am a program coordinator of the Center for Documentary Studies Continuing Education Program. We're producing Seeing White, and I think you took classes there. So it's really amazing to see you here. Um, it's my first time at Third Coast, and it's been amazing to see so much color in the festival. Um, I just came from Getting Real in LA, which is a, a video documentary um, festival. So there's been a lot of similar conversations, and I think we're all t trying to tell stories in different mediums. Um, I have a question. So in the documentary, video documentary industry, there's a whole field that's like growing in impact producing. So there's an impact producer convening, and there's a whole field of just thinking about how do we strategize to um, uh, like think about life of a documentary after distribution, after theatrical releases, after festivals, circuit, and thinking about real impact. So are there um, conversations around that in the audio industry, audio community? Probably not. My sigh probably means no. I mean, yes, there are, right? Like, so KQED, because it's a legacy station, loves to tout any story that, like, gets a lot of attention. Or um, I want to point out Katrina in this room, who just is helping to change uh, San Francisco education policy, a story he, she did, shone a light on the racism of the, um, of this, the lottery they had, because a lot of which are right parents were gaming the system. And so that is that stuff that we try to champion. But I think we could be doing more, especially with this kind of storytelling, um, you know, and wondering about how to do things like get it into school. With American Suburb, like my biggest um, love of that, and I think Devin Kadiyama, who was my co-host on that, is in the room, so shout out to him too. But um, my, my biggest um, sort of thing with that was that we got some calls from teachers who wanted to teach it. And that was so meaningful. And I think that, that they're that there should be more of that. So yes, that's a great idea. We should be doing that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, with Seeing White, a lot of people have independently formed community groups. They form curriculums around both Seeing White and Uncivil, and a lot of our podcasts, actually. But one way for me to answer this question is to say that the, the, one of the thing, journeys I've gone on in my own understanding of activism is that there certainly is one kind of activism where you're just like shutting shit down. And then, but what I've learned is oftentimes like the Mitch McConnell kind of activism is like mastering how to understand budgets and all these smaller details. And so a lot of these administrative battles that are happening and we're talking about in the newsroom, the kind of things that Sam talked about, actually translate into battles for us to have more time to do things with all this content that we're creating. I mean, it's such amazing content. I know because as a professor, I assign a lot of it, right? But I remember saying to several journalist friends, like, this is incredible. You need to have, we need to have a team to build a curriculum around this and really lengthen it and think about how we can bring it into communities and how communities can bring their thing to, you know, and, and the reality of it is, but if we're all working 90 hours a week, you know, so that's actually, a, I see some of that, what you're talking about as a labor work issue, right, and a, and a job security issue, right, where we have to take control of our organizations by whatever means so that we can make all the different kinds of engagement and really make them relevant to the community. I'm very curious from some of the early examples that you played, like the Christmas light story or the StoryCorps story, if you had a chance to re-edit them, what are the changes that you would make to, to kind of do some of the things you're talking about? So with the StoryCorps story, I think that I 
there is a fundamental way, a fundamental problem with the way that story was conceived, and that it shouldn't should have never made it past the pitch point. So I I, I would throw it out, right? Um, and the reason is because it was conceived with this idea that there could be some sort of equality between these two people, or there could be a moment that is, you know, makes you stop in your driveway and feel good. And that's a question we need to ask ourselves is what is the purpose of this story? And if the purpose of that, your story is to make your audience feel good, you are not a journalist. Because life right now doesn't feel good. And that sucks because we want it to. But those are the kind of questions you need to initially ask. With the robot story, I don't know. I just got, I like, I, I, I fell into that pratfall where I got so in love with the tape because he was so great that I wasn't asking myself these deeper questions. Um, and I, I think I would now, and I'll try to think of a good answer. Hello, thank you for your session. It was amazing. Um, I just wanted to comment on something that I wonder if other people, well, I think a lot of people have maybe thought about or experienced just in talking about diversifying the newsroom. Um, I am uh, Venezuelan-Canadian, and uh, I've been wanting to work in radio full-time for many years, but I haven't been able to um, because in Canada, at least, um, at least to work at the CBC, for example, you need to, quote-unquote, pay your dues and engage with these very precarious contracts uh, where you take on one-week, two-week, three-month shifts, and then pretty much... I, I love the CBC, and I'm actually a casual employee there right now, but, um, but it, it feels like you need to work, be hired internally, um, even though that's not, you know, technically what they, what they do. Um, but then there's this, all this talk of diversifying the newsroom, and I've, had, I've chatted to people at the CBC about, you know, what, what can I do to get a full-time job, and they tell me, oh, well, play up the fact that you're Latina. And it's just, it feels very frustrating because there's, where is that intersection of... Um, like, yeah, money, like, ac you know, access to, to financial security and diversity. And it's, anyway, I'm just very frustrated by that in general. <laughs> the, the, I want to be clear, I, I want to be clear. So you're, part of what your concern is, is like the way in which even when you want to take advantage of a diversity strategy, now you have to present yourself as like a diversity kind of candidate or diversity hire? The intersection of economic diversity and racial diversity, I just feel like that's not part of the conversation. It's like, we need more Latino people, but it's like, okay, but what, what about all the class and, and, and money aspects of it? Yeah. A hundred percent, yeah. We, we need to pay interns and we need to pay interns more. Um, I mean, that's like that in public radio. Because even like, you cannot, like the only reason I'm in public radio was because there was this quirky little station named KLW that didn't pay me. Yes, right? Best place ever. Um, the, uh, that didn't pay me, but I was, you know, working as a bartender and a waitress. And I was working like hundreds of hours per week. But that was, I, I had the privilege to be able to do that, right? I had the time. I had the, you know, the ability to, to sort of leverage like my bartending tips and to do it for free. That's so lucky. But that means that that's available to me and not somebody else. And so we need to, we need to pay, we need paid pathways into journalism. And like, I, I don't know how to do that. I'm just a station reporter, but like, tell me how to do that and I will fight to do that. I mean, I would also say, I, I just want to say quickly, and I know we, is that like, you know, conversations about fit. If you look at the hiring process, there's all these ways that like a colonial mentality is baked into all these seemingly neutral professional practices. 
So those are the things that have to be dissected and we have to look at that and see, you know, in academia, the concept of fit is very much that. I've seen a lot of candidates be ruled out. They're like, oh, they're just not a good fit, you know. Um, but I would say, I'm not saying to you to play up whatever, but we have to be tactical about getting into these institutions and transforming them. And there's no shame associated with that for me. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah, I, you know, but. Hi, thank you so much. Um, my name is Margaret. This kind of goes off of what your last point was, um, kind of the structure of our current institutions in journalism. Um, I did a little bit of reporting on indigenous land rights issues and um, started to pay attention to conversations happening on Twitter um, with the indigenous rights community and have seen a lot of conversation about compensating sources for their time and wisdom. And I think this goes to your point as we're storytellers, not story takers. And I'm having a hard time as a young reporter trying to make sense of that and what makes sense, what, whether we should be changing our ethical protocol or not, and how to just have those conversations with people who might be sick and tired of sharing their communities and wisdom and history for journalistic uh, benefit, but maybe not for the benefit of their own communities. Ooh, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, I would, yes. Um, I, I kind of want to invite maybe someone else to, who has some experience with this to comment. Yeah, so let me shut up. And one of the things that we struggle with particularly is because we have so much economic independence in our communities, right? You've been told that, um, we've often been told that if you do a certain thing, you are going to receive a certain benefit. So our communities oftentimes now come to expect that if you do a certain thing, you need to give me that certain benefit. So I have to push back a little bit on that comment because that's actually something we face in the community. We can't sometimes ask community members to to share something, it's not like we're being story takers, right? Because I don't even think that applies sometimes in Native communities. But we're also being asked to, you know, to say, well, where is my, you know, where is the benefit in that for me in terms of like a gift card or $25 or something like that? That is a very, very problematic thing for us um, as, as storytellers, but as a community in general. So that one I, I'm going to push back on a little bit. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um... Yeah, let me, I, does somebody else want to respond to this particular line? We just need to start doing stack. Look, I, <laughs> like, what, what I want to say is, is that thank you for bringing that. And so I think on one hand, there's the very serious issue of ethics, right? And the ethics and, and, and sort of practical things of trying to pay sources that, and I think there's a real reason why we don't do that. It's not, there's not like, it's not for no reason. And yet, I agree with you. I mean, let's keep it real. People are taking people's stories. People are getting book deals, going on book tours. And so this is an increasing conversation I'm seeing. And so I think that what this really means is that while taking that ethical responsibility seriously, we, we can have a co critical conversation. We can revisit. It's not like this has been decided and we can't revisit it critically in the, with, with all these people getting book deals and nobody's along for the ride, right? So I think that we should talk about that because and academia has the same problem, right? We go get people's ethnographies, people pouring out their life biographies, knowledge, then what do we get? Tenure, insurance for our families, what do they get? I think that we should pitch a Third Coast panel that's you know, writing a new ethics playbook because I want to talk more about these conversations and there just isn't the time. But that, is, I mean, for me, like, the idea of paying sources is anathema, right? Because it's a slippery slope. But, you know, I'll just call myself out. So, like, 
there are times I've, I've reported with people who I know have no money and I've spent a lot of time. I buy them food. I buy them dinner. We sit there and we eat. We get to know each other. Um, that's because I can't not because I'm human and I understand. Um, so like there are slippery slopes even within the way that I have practiced that I think all of this, yeah, this is, that's amazing. Thank you for, for raising that. I think that's really important to talk about. Um, I have a question about the structural relationship between public radio and its audience. Um, I've been making radio for a long time, and right now my show is heard on the weekend on stations. And the way that weekend public radio listening is made is to be an enjoyable experience for boomers and Gen Xers and, and, and to not challenge them. So without fail, every few weeks, I have a fight with my editors about how much I should have to explain to them. For instance, I had to explain the word ratchet in an episode recently because we knew that there were some boomers or, or like Xers that wouldn't understand it. And my question is like, how do we challenge that and that structure that has created this relationship where our listeners don't actually think sometimes when they hear public radio that it should challenge them, that it should be as much journalism as they do or like don't want to hear. The structure has created this relationship where that audience doesn't want to be challenged and they expect easy listening. How do we address that? Uh, yeah, this is a, I'm so glad you brought this in. First of all, let me just say, we now have an official term for that coined by Leela, I think. Uh, it called, yes, yes. Yeah, radio, radio explaining. Radio-splaining. So this is now a conversation about the, the identity politics of radio-splaining. But I think that, you know, a lot of these things happen about with inside this, like these imagined audience responses, right? It's like an imagined audience, how we think the audience is going to respond. And when you say, I, I have enough, when you actually say, I have enough faith in my audience to say we can throw this out, you're, you're said, it's like you're being, you're being pessimistic about the audience or something like that. But what's interesting about seeing white, right, is that, you know, we got like millions of listeners, you know? So it turns out that the people who didn't think white people could handle that were pessimistic about white people, not us. You know, we have to have more faith in people. And I think we have to question these imagined audiences' conversations. I mean, again, now me say, just throwing that out, like, yeah, go do that. And then you're actually in the situation with your editor, <laughs> right? But I do think that like we need to, one, way, one thing we can do in this room is create that conversation, right? We can start to write some pieces about this and talk about that, right? Like those moments, because I do think that that's, you know, that's that bullshit, anyway. Yeah, well we, well we imagine our audiences are like us, right? And so when you have a bunch of white editors, a bunch of white, edit, you know, upper middle class white editors, that they're seeing themselves. And if I told you the number of times I was told by an editor at my station, what about, what about the white woman in Marin who's listening to this? It, I, like, I want to shoot myself every single time. Because also, we don't live 50 years ago. We live in a world where there's this little thing called Google. It's on your phone. You can type it in and figure it out. Um, I want to comment on the thing you said about all stories being about race. I completely agree. Um, but I'm having like a really hard time reconciling the idea that so many newsrooms are full of people who do not think about race and have not. Um, and we know that people have diversity efforts and they're challenging their notions and all of that. But it's like it's like it's not going to happen <laughs> overnight at all. And it's hard to reconcile the idea that we're listening to stories um, from people who may not have the range. So like, what are we missing? So I don't know if this is a question or a comment, but I'm just really interested in your thoughts on that. And like, what 
we can be doing to challenge that or what we can be doing to, I don't know, get people in the room who do think about race um, and aren't necessarily experts. Like, I don't know that the person always has to be an expert, but it's like, it's very, I don't know, it's very, I've been in many newsrooms where like people don't think about these things in their everyday life because they have not had to, but that's who is giving us our news. Right. Did I use the word neoliberalism yet? You didn't. Nice. Yes. I waited all the way to the end. Yesterday it took him 10 minutes to use it. I was shocked it took him that long and he used it twice. Now he's gone almost the entire panel without saying it. Floored. Thank you for this question. Thank you. Late capitalism. (laughs) Wants us to imagine that all solutions to problems are individual. And what you're raising is, is, is one p- part of what you're raising is that actually as individuals in our newsrooms, we can't actually solve these problems. It has to be a collective response. So the answer, the real answer, and I hate to sound like a broker, but it's, it's, it, we have to organize collectively because if you're that individual person, we've all, I know so many people in this room, I know specifically some of the stories, you've been that person in the room. I've been that person in the room trying to explain people looking at me like I got three heads, you know what I mean? And it's like, so, it, but it, so collective organizing is part of it. The other thing I would say is that I want to go back to the point about objectivity because I have a lot of, um, a lot of my students will sometimes, journalism students will come, they think it's enough to just point out bias, right? And the way I've fought these battles, which is much easier than a lot of most people in this room probably, the context in which I fought them, is it's not just enough to say this is biased or this is wrong. You have to, I have to do the research and show the people what's missing. The reason why your bias, your racial bias matters is because you're missing X. And sometimes I'm not aware of that, right? Because you know how it is. When you're oppressed, you just got spidey senses that go off. You hear some shit, you're like, that's wrong, right? And if you have to like, and, and say it right on the spot, it might not come out right, right? So now you got, I got to go research and study like, okay, actually what I'm, what's going on And that's why I have so much love, by the way, for the journalists and editors in here, because what we do with language can name and put those things out, you know what I mean, and and do that. But I think that some of it is organizing and some of it is study to be able to name that dynamic, that radio-splaining, right? Like, that was beautiful. We got that now. We could use that. Ah, you want me to to radio-splain the white people. That's what you're saying. Um, I just I just wanted to give a shout out. Thank you for bringing this discussion here. I feel like especially in this at this conference and in this body of people, it's a really important just ideas to be brought into the room. So thank you. I also wanted to give a shout out because I took this amazing two day training recently that if you have any of you who work in newsrooms or have the capacity to bring these people to you and do this training, it's the New Schools Center for Journalism and Design. And they have a training that is called Journalism and Systems Thinking. It's two whole days. They could probably make it less or make it more. But it's, it's like going deeply into this. They had this awesome handout that was like daily practices for systems thinking, kind of like almost like meditations and little activities to get you, you get your brain in the pattern of thinking this way on a daily basis. So it was super useful, super deep, if you're able to, the New School Center for Journalism and Design. Yeah, I'm trying to sign. You know, just put me down. Yeah, yeah. Hey there, my name is Katie. I spend a lot of time talking about race, gender, and class, and bicycles. If anyone wants to know about that later, we'll talk. Um, I spend a lot of time in POC spaces, and I am often sort of called out or engaged in discussions of reverse racism. And I'm wondering how you guys respond to that 
and how you, how you hear that and then how you respond to it. And maybe if you can give us elegant tools to talk about that with folks in our community or outside. I mean, well, the thing that I hear when I hear reverse racism is, first of all, that's not a thing. Like, so, um, but then how do you explain that to people? Um, and, and I think that there is a kind of factual argument to be had for talking about um, the way in which reverse racism isn't a thing. So to question that, you know, first of all, it's like, okay, you know, you, you think I have bias, we can talk about those, but let's first of all talk about reverse racism and why it isn't a thing and racism only goes one way and why it only goes one way. And then you can try to get to the deeper issues if they, you know, because maybe they have some small kernel of a valid point that you have some bias that, who knows? But first and foremost, reverse racism is not a thing. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would say to support that, you know, well, for one, there's a great YouTube clip of Amar Rahman. Everybody seen reverse racism? That will do some work for you. Just hit, you know, if you can bring YouTube into, I don't know if you, how you do that, but that's one thing. But the other thing is... Um, you also have to recognize that sometimes the lack of information can't be overcome in that particular conversational moment. And, you know, there's spaces to do that work, right? Like, I, I, you know, but, and so I think, like, that's one thing to assess. Like, is this a space where I can do that work right now? Because if it doesn't, you got to protect your energy a little bit, you know? It's, it's relentless out here, you know? So and what, what it takes, I think, is, like, people have to, people got to read, they got to study and, you know, stuff like that, so. It is an unfair bur- I mean, so you were talking about newsrooms, and I think undercover agents like me in newsrooms is a great thing. And I think as many of you guys who maybe you want to be independent, but if you do end up working in newsrooms, that is that is a force for good. Um, but it is, you know, the, un- the unfairness of the system is that the people who are oppressed by it are the ones who have to do the work to change it. And that sucks, and I get pissed about it, and I yell, and I break things, and then I take the white half of me, and I do the work. Okay, that was the Q&A from the second presentation of All Stories or Stories About Power. Here's the Q&A from day one. Can y'all give us an example of how to correct that story with the hijab versus the hat? Oh, thanks. <laughs> he walks back. Um, um, I, don't, I don't do solutions. I just... You know, <laughs> that's, a, that's a hard one, but I think that's actually a valid, a valid question, right? So, like, I would actually question the framing of that story in the first place. I, I don't think that I would have greenlit a story where you're having two people from very, very different kind of um, power dynamics and spaces and trying to create a myth of empathy. I'm, I might not have told it. Um, and I, I know that's not really a solution, but I think, I think that we need, we need to think about audience, right? So, like, who's that story aimed for? What is it trying to make them feel? Is it trying to make them feel better? And if it's trying to make them feel better, that's not what journalists do. Right, we're not out here to like be like, it's okay, sweetie. Um, there was this funny thing where we were doing all these audience surveys and you know, uh, at KQED, and like people were saying, well, the news is really bumming me out these days. And I was like, I am really sorry, <laughs> but there is nothing I can do about that. So I, I might have questioned that at, at a kind of pre-editorial level, that perhaps the aim of that story was itself problematic. Now, that does not mean you cannot tell her story and his story potentially separately, right? Giving them a whole lot more agency and maybe pointing out that this is not a bridge we can force together. He doesn't automatically see her humanity at the end. He doesn't automatically understand the kind of ways in which he's supporting systems that might be pinning her down um, or how he came to his thoughts. Um, So it might be that you have to separate them out and you have to not call for that radical empathy. You can't force empathy as much as we want to. 
I want to. I agree. Just speaking back to the provocation um, last night, I remember the quote Stan said, don't just fact check your story, fact check your analysis. Yeah. Right? If the analysis is we just need more empathy, then my concern is we do need empathy and we do actually need those kinds of moments, but there's a disproportionate number of stories like that. So in a way, it could be that the problem is not actually with that story, but with the mix of the, the just predominance of that kind of story and that analysis, when in fact, we're a country that's deeply uneducated about power, about imperialism, about history, about Islamophobia, and that's needed. You know, I, I used to live in South Carolina, which taught me a lot about the problems. You know, like in South Carolina, people are like, you know, you know up here, people would be like, oh my God, it must be horrible down there. You know, just, just racists everywhere, Klan rallies. And it was like, yeah, it was Klan. I went to like a lot of Klan rallies. Down there. But the thing is, is that probably people at those Klan rallies, they'll have you over to dinner, you know, they'll exchange hats and we could do all kind of cool stuff. But they did not understand why voter ID is racist. They don't understand why right redistricting is racist. Right. And you couldn't really convince them. So as a as a news person, a storyteller, what kind of story do you want to tell as an intervention into that? Right. Um, yeah. Cool. Hey. <laughs> um, yeah. So I have, I guess, like two questions. One is more of a point that I had wanted to make um, back when the slide for John Bewin is up. Um, I love his podcast. I think he uh, says some really good things and has some really good conversations. But I've uh, always wondered why Asians are always like left out of that conversation. It almost seems like a purposeful thing. Like even he in that intro, he mentioned he was like, I've done stories on like black people. I've done stories on like on Native American people, Hispanic people, and I was like, and the Asian people, like, where are they? And, like, I get that that is a more subtle thing to get at, but, like, whatever. That's not necessarily my question, but wanted to make a point about that. As, as a half Asian American, yes, and also Asian is not really a thing because half of the world fits into this one category. So, like, you know, it's, 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 it is complicated, but that is definitely a huge lacuna um, and one that I struggle with as well. Yeah, yeah, I just... Yeah, I, 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 I totally, as a participant in Seeing White, I totally received that critique. I'm fairly sure John would as well. And, and I want to even take it um, deeper to say one of the reasons why that critique would have been extremely, particularly relevant to Seeing White, although we did have a couple of areas dealing with this issue, is that most of the architecture of our immigration law was done in relation to Asian Americans, more than black people, more than Latinos, mostly Asian, right? So, you know, I mean, so you can't actually understand. So by, by leaving that out, that's a huge structural factor that doesn't let us understand immigration, right? And it also doesn't let us understand contemporary feelings, right? And all these other things. So, yes. <laughs> cool. All right. And yeah, my other thing was just like as a station reporter or whatever, I feel like I am aware of these things a lot of the time. I'm a reporter at a very, in a very white place um, where there is very little diversity, Cape Cod. Um, and I feel like I've like been seeing these systems very much at work. I'm, I'm not from Cape Cod and I moved there from Oakland actually. Um, <laughs> so like I, it was a shock for me to encounter a culture that was like, you know, you couldn't even have the conversations and the people weren't having the conversations that people are, were having in Oakland. Um, and just as like a station reporter, I've really felt the pushback of A, the grind of like the news cycle, having to cover the stories and then like wanting to get deeper, only having four minutes to do it and like essentially having like an editor who's like, you can't just go out and like, I did a story about like J1 students who come to the Cape to work as seasonal workers. Um, and I found just like, you know, whatever, 
the general like news story was that J1s are coming here and it's terrible. Like we're using like student labor to supplement the Cape's tourist economy. Like that's terrible on the surface. But then the other thing that came out to me was that like black students who were coming from like Jamaica or the Dominican Republic were having a much worse time than J1 students who were coming from Russia or Bulgaria. And that was like this underlying race thing that I wanted to get through in my series reporting. And I just couldn't. There was no way to get to it because there wasn't even an expert to say it. And like I personally, as the reporter, want to point it out. But like, I can't do that as the reporter. Like, how do you get at something like that? Yeah, I do. And I want to answer briefly because I want to give as many people a chance to, to, to be a part <laughs> Sorry, of our conversation. No, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, this is a real issue. I think it's there's a structural component of it is the majority of it, right? It's like we have to we have to use whatever you union, I mean, you know, whatever organization and power and pressure we can say to free up some time for us to work on deeper stories is needed. And that's part of what Sam's point. But the other thing I would say is you have to have the analysis and you, you do have the power to bake it into your questions. So many times when I'm listening to stories where it, where it, it doesn't happen, you know, I, there was one, there's a, I'm not going to call the person out, but I listened to a very prominent journalist in, interview Steve Bannon. They got Steve Bannon to a full interview and, you know, what I recognized compassionately is that this person was not prepared with the analysis to take on Steve Bannon. So the structure, and that was like a kind of a brief, it was like an eight minute, it wasn't too long, you know what I mean? It was maybe like six minutes. But had they had these things in mind, they would have known what to hit them on. Instead, they just were like, aren't you racist, aren't you racist, aren't you racist, aren't you racist? You see what I'm saying? And so you, I think studying actually can help, you know, because then you can just like, know what questions to ask and force those questions into even a quick interview. I think you can also frame that story in the way that gets to that. You don't need the expert voice. I think we overuse this concept of the expert voice and who we choose as experts. It's its own entire like complicated thing. But a profile of a, a Jamaican student looking for a job, even trying to do an informal count of who's employed, who these J1, I mean, if, that, if you can find that data, you don't need, the data will be your expert, right? And then you can try to understand who's getting hired, profile the student that isn't getting hired. And, I mean, you can, they know why they're not getting hired. They're going to tell you. You can use them telling you, and you can ask that. So I think that you, you can still do that story. I think you can even still do it in four minutes. And I think you can do it without an expert using data and context to get all of those p the issues. And I think that that would be the better story. Cool. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Um, so I've had the experience of pitching things, like to hire up people at stations and also, like, the host at the show that I work on where it's like it's it's not accepted because it's like immediately called out as activists or that like the person like has an axe to grind. But I think a lot of times that same host will like talk to someone who's like in a position of power. So it doesn't seem like they have like an axe to grind, but they're like totally representing someone's interests. And I'm I'm kind of curious if there's any like gatekeepers in the room, anyone who like takes a pitch who's interested in like breaking that down or talking about like if they're willing to kind of like change <laughs> change that paradigm where like you're not uh, not accepting something because it's like an activist. Like why do we think that activists are like pushing something when like someone who is a CEO of a company is like not, you know, pushing an idea or something? And I mean, and I want to add as like as a journalist, like you're going to you're not going to take what anybody has to say for granted. Right. You're going to understand that, like, if an activist tells you something, you're going to fact check it. You're going to look at that. You're going to understand that just like you would with a CEO, because what we want to do, it, we're not giving special fa like favors. Right. To certain people versus other people. And I don't know if baking that in, if trying to kind of like. 
But, I, but I'm curious. She asked a question. I mean, I, I'd like yeah. somebody who has insight on that. And it's not so much like, you know, to attack anybody who's in the position of green light, but to offer some context. And, and so to just throw a little bit of agreement with you, I mean, that was one of my first experiences coming into public media was like the eye rolling when we would talk about activists, you know. And, you know, so I just was like, oh, these people are all centrist conservatives. But uh, it turns out that um, some of them they, they don't admit it. They hide behind objectivity and other, you know, imagined audiences. But and that could be true. But I think like it's there's it's also there are genuine complicated factors of covering news, which I now understand. So is, is anybody have insight? Can, who's been on the other side of those pitches and can talk about those complications? Okay, I'll, I'll put myself out there. I don't remember your pitch, but I do remember your face. Um, but I can talk about this in the context of um, some of the coverage that we've done at KCRW in Los Angeles of homelessness, um, because it's a huge problem there. We cover it a lot. And we have good sources for the reporters that I work with. I'm an editor. The reporters have good sources who are activists. And they'll bring things to our attention about how the police are handling their cleanups um, or what different issues are coming up on the street. And I have found that I, when I'm working with a reporter who's very closely tied to what the activists think and what the activists are doing, that sometimes I have to push really hard to understand more about like what's happening there besides what the activists want to be happening. So, for instance, there was a story about um, sidewalk space and people sleeping on the streets, and business owners have started to pull permits from the city to do sidewalk gardens. And that's a way of claiming the public space for the business so that people can't sleep on the street. And to me, this is a really interesting story about contested public space and what gentrification looks like in a particular area in a really concrete way. And I really found that I had to work very hard to get the reporter to try to get the perspective of the businesses. Why are they doing this? What is it like to run a business when you have a homeless camp in front of your business? And uh, it wasn't hard at all to get those voices of the people on the street and to get the activists pointing out that it was happening. And that was useful for the story. But I have found when I'm working with reporters who mainly are sourced by activists or even see themselves as activists, that it's hard to get those multiple perspectives and to try to understand why are the people, they're not just like haters, you know, they also have a reason for what they're doing. Let's try to understand it. Let's hear from the landlord who's evicting the people. Let's hear from the developer who's building the apartment building you hate or whatever it is. And I have found reporters like forget to get that perspective. And it leaves out a really important part of exactly what you're talking about, the structure. Why is this happening? It's not just happening because people are being persecuted. There's an economic reason behind it. I just want to call, I just want to, that's a really, I think, important moment because I actually share your analysis of this problem. One of the big problems I think we have around dealing with corporate things is the narrative of corporate greed, right? But, you know, and we, we, we take a structural problem and make it into this personal moral flaw, right? People are just greedy, you know? But the reality of it is they're not, they're not actually being greedy, right? Like they have shareholders and they have circumstances that they're making decisions, right? I mean, maybe they're greedy. Who knows? They probably are. Maybe, you know, but my point is like, that's not why they're making choices, right? They're making choices because if you're in a business, right, 
that where you have to make certain kinds of choices, your structure requires you to make horrible, evil choices. That's what capitalism is. So in a way, right, I've been that activist who's working with you. And then you're like, talk to the business owners. And what I hear in that moment is, oh, here's both sides. Right. But actually what you're what you're telling me at that time is, no, I'm trying to maybe get us to a deeper analysis that really will go to stuff. Right. So it's complicated. So I want to give the example of that that springs to mind for me, which is the book Evicted by Matthew Desmond. If anyone's read it, if you haven't, go read it now. It's amazing. It's phenomenal. But what he does is he talks to both people who are being evicted and to the landlords and they are both caught in the same system. And so you don't have to release your systems analysis to, to get both sides. But if you just say, I'm going to get this side, I'm going to get this side, then you're not doing what we're talking about. Thank you. Okay, so I'm not a reporter. Um, I came to audio as an activist. Nice. I'm like that person y'all bitches hate. Okay. But also, like, my question, and a lot of this has not, like, a lot to think about, because what brought me to audio is that, and please call me out if I'm caught in the empathy trap of that moment of transcendence um, that, that happens with storytelling and with narratives. Um, but I just also as a listener and maybe because I'm t I'm not talking about journalism, but I'm talking about specific like storytelling. Like, is are you saying the answers are like signposting and being really explicit? No, no, I no also, signposting. Well, because I also think that at the same time. Um, I'm like, I want to trust my listeners that they're not, I don't want to say stupid, but like what you're saying about um, John Buin. I guess what I'm asking is, is like, is that, am I just caught in that, in that empathy trap or how can we tell personal narratives without being explicitly like these are struck, like in and out of this model? Or are you saying like, this is the model and like get away from that, that like one person thing that's going to leave out all this other shit? You know what I'm saying? I know, I know exactly what you're saying. So, like, it's not even that literal of a model. It's not like, let's tackle the structural. Let's tackle the cultural. Like, we all love having those moments of transcendence, right? You know, the, the so-called driveway moment. The problem is if it's just the driveway moment, if it's all, only the driveway moment, you stop your car for five minutes, you listen, you cry, you fix your eye makeup, if you're me, which you're probably doing anyways, you fix your eye makeup, and then you go inside. So it's not that we don't erase that moment. That moment doesn't go anywhere. That is a very important moment. It is very cathartic for me. Don't stop. But it's not about just that, right? Because actually, a story is going to hit you a lot harder. It's going to stay with you a lot longer if it's not just one person's story or one culture story, but it's actually a more rigorous analysis of what brought us to that moment in the first place. So it's, this is not an argument for don't do personal storytelling. This is not an argument for, for don't kind of find those moments that we're looking for. Like beautiful moments of storytelling are still beautiful moments of storytelling. There's a reason that the novel is one of the most humanistic art forms in existence. It's also very problematic, but humanistic, right? That, that does create ways for us to enter into other worlds we might nor not normally have access to. And I'm still starry-eyed and naive about that. Like absolutely, don't lose that. It's about adding this on, right? So you don't have to lose that to then say the reason that person is in this moment that is going to floor you, that is going to gut you, that is going to make you stop your car is not just because this thing happened to them. And that will make an even more profound story. Does that make sense? I, yeah, I just will say, um, one, I, you know, it's occurs to me, there's something I want to say, and I, 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 want, I want to say this as someone who is in this journey very much myself about what I'm about to say. If you have not, are not literate 
with critiques of capitalism, the most robust ones. If you're not literate with radical feminist theory, if you're not literate with disability theory, if you're not literate with critical race theory, right? If you're not literate with, you know, things on LGBTQ, like queer theory and those issues, I think you're not yet equipped to tell the stories that we need right now. That's not hating on, none of us, and I'm not, I'm not as literate as I wanna be on any of those things. So we need to be studying those things, right? You should be operating with a sort of self-compassionate deficit. Like I got, I'm, I'm trying to catch up to this and be in that study, for one. S secondly, I want to say yes. You know, the personal and empathy. My, like as, as Sonia's saying, those things are. I see them as tools. The question is, what are they being used for? Right. So it's not to avoid them. It's to say those tools are there, but to ask those deeper questions about what they're being used for. And I just want to say too, like just as kind of my last thing to say is that I think Sandhya and so many other people here at this conference have really made real victories in telling stories that hit all these levels. And I, and I, so I hope we keep talking to each other, talk to them and talk to each other about figuring this problem out so that our stories, can, we can really unleash the power of what we do. Thanks for staying with us, y'all. That was Chenjerai Kumanyika and Sanja Dirks speaking at the 2018 Third Coast Conference. You can hear more great sessions like this one on the Third Coast Pocket Conference podcast. <laughs>